0: KRCL, Salt Lake City. Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Stick around tonight. We're going to dip into reframing the conversation from our friends at Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah. Last month, their topic was Strange Fruit, why we must address anti-black racism. Got a panel discussion to share with you. We get the bulk of it in this hour. And one of my favorite passages is when the moderator, Dr. Rachel Alicia Griffin says, that listening and learning's not enough to change the structures of racism. You'll get some ideas on how you can help. And you'll also hear about the lived experiences of the panels from the moderator, Dr. Griffin, To Tyler Clark, Edmund Fong, Dr. Tamara Stevenson, and Asia Washington, Asia is part of the Black, Bold, and Brilliant team at the Utah Film Center, and that is where we're going to start our show. Joining me in studio, we have Russell Roots from the Utah Film Center. Hi, Russell. How are you?
1: Doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So for folks who may not be aware of Black, Bold, and Brilliant, can you summarize that for us?
1: Sure. It's a program where we use cinema as a lens to discuss black culture issues, and uh, next week we're having a really wonderful film called Compensation.
0: Compensation. All right, what's it about? And we're going to introduce our fellow guest here in a second. But briefly summarize and tell us the filmmaker.
1: Sure. It's uh, was made in nineteen ninety nine by filmmaker Zainabu Irene Davis, and it's a wonderful film that discusses disability in the Black community through two stories, um, one from the eighteen hundreds and one from the nineteen hundreds, uh, the nineteen nineties really, of a deaf woman and a hearing man and the older couple and the modern couple are played by the same actors in different roles so it's really experimental.
0: I really enjoyed it and joining us to add to our conversation in this preview tonight of Black Bold and Brilliant we have Gabriella Huggins executive director from Art Access. Hello finally we meet in person. Yeah
2: so good to meet you in person thank you for having me. here.
0: Absolutely so initially you hear this film Compensation and it's uh, it's a, a black love story over time and history, but there's also this element of disability of American Sign Language going on. What what intrigued you about that? I
2: just think I really appreciated. Um, I mean, fundamentally, seeing um, a love story from the post-slavery era and the 1990s. This really this arc of um, black love and the struggles between these these two different people from different times, from different places in the in the country, but also from very different lived experiences. I think often. Um, we see we see black love stories in a very stereotypical sense. I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of dynamics that this movie shifts around gender roles, um, shifting the way that we think about a male male roles in relationships versus women, thinking about um, what it means to be in a cross ability relationship. Um, just challenging, you know, our assumptions about black love in a
0: really, really powerful way that I appreciated very deeply. So also different <coughs> techniques in this film. Right. Yeah. Um, it's when I first started seeing these kind of historical cards come up, it's almost like a silent film, which underscores one of the main characters being deaf. Um, And then there are these historical Ken Burnsian type Mm -hmm. of documentary film elements. And then there's the time jump back and forth.
1: Yeah. It's a really wonderful presentation of this kind of like, uh, universal ability to, to portray a, a, a movie. So in regards to you've got this deaf character in the antiquity sense and in the modern sense, but you've got sign language, you've got ASL, you've got captions, you've actually got the the silent uh, silent film cards that are actually on screen. So you have this really wonderful ability to tell this story regardless of whatever messaging point that uh, the director is really bringing up.
0: A lot of different elements going on, Gabriella. There's also this
2: piece of like music, um, uh-huh. um, the use of just like, different modes of communicating. I think what's so interesting is early on in the film um, with the, anti- with the <coughs> um, antiquities relationship, uh, there's, there's like a learning, there's a language barrier beyond the deafness. Um, there is also being, like, being illiterate and unable to read. And so just the, the creativity of communication in this film is very, very intriguing to me as well. I give,
0: there's a point where um, <coughs> the characters and through time, so let's get these right. Malindi and Malika. Mm-hmm. and then Arthur and Nico, okay. Yes. So in the 1800s, uh, to try and communicate, she, she writes and he can't read. Mm-hmm. And this comes back around mm-hmm. again in the film.
1: Yeah, and it's really great because uh, there is that part from the older couple, you know, the couple in antiquity, where he can't read and she's on the chalkboard, but in the modern sense, you know, he can't do AC, uh, ASL as he's trying to reach out to this deaf woman. And so he's got to learn, again, a new language to try and communicate, which, again, really just speaks to the transcendent uh, aspect of communication and the really the desire to connect with human beings, regardless of ability.
2: Yep, totally. In regards to time, ability, I think the racial barriers as well are so interesting. There's so much uh, prejudice that is experienced in both of these different time periods based off of education, um, but also this this barrier between the deaf and hearing world, this mistrust um, around ableism that happens in this community. And so um, really these two people being committed to, to love and care for each other mm-hmm. um, across communication and the, the
0: effort to try is really, really special. We're talking about compensation of film that the Utah Film Center will screen as part of its Black Bold and Brilliant series next week on March 15th, 7 p.m. online. You don't need a ticket, but you need to reserve a seat.
1: That is true. Just go to utahfilmcenter.org and reserve a ticket.
0: One of the aspects of compensation that I really liked was the the history cards, so to speak, that pop up. And there was a really interesting point straight off, because this is set in Chicago, early 1900s. We're talking about um, the Great Migration North. Um, 1900 to 1910, quote unquote, colored people in Chicago, the population doubles. So there's all this kind of context coming at you from history. Um, Let's see, what else do I have here? 1905, the Chicago Defender begins publication. And on and on and on. And there's a point where the character Melindy, the antiquity couple, Mm -hmm. thank you for the term, um, is going to the Kendall School of, of the Deaf in 1893, but it then it becomes segregated in 1906 as more black people are coming north mm-hmm. and segregation starts mm-hmm. to come into play and the colored children in the deaf school are ultimately expelled. Yep. And so I wanted to bring this element out and talk with you, especially in your role at Art Access, which really works with folks um, across disabilities um, and you have a particular lens uh, of race on it too under right. your executive directorship.
2: I mean, I think absolutely. I think what I really appreciated about, appreciate about being in my role at Art Access is this emphasis on intersectionality um, that our organization is working toward. Um, and so this film really captures very well the intersection of race and disability. And the way, I mean, you know, we talk about this in some of our Art Access programming as we do Breaking Bears, which is a training that we run for cultural institutions as they work to create more equitable, accessible spaces. Um... <coughs> Th- this idea that, you know we we talk about segregation um, in the South and in educational systems, but a lot of people don't recognize that um, some of the the last schools to segregate were schools that were for disabled populations. Um, and so we had segregated schools throughout history, but then disabled young people were often locked out from their own communities regardless of race, but then also just separated from each other as well. Um, so I, I really did appreciate that that section of the film as well, really talking about the way that um, these schools for the deaf were, you know like to to, to to consider the idea that you are a black stu- a black young person in chicago being probably the one black person in a, in a disabled school and then to be separated out because as people who look like you migrate north it's just a bizarre a really an, an untold part of history
0: so in terms of art access and you're approaching these intersectionalities what are you finding are the challenges we have here in utah um, I'm not asking you to throw stones. I'm just asking you to you know, speak plainly about what you think we need to be doing as we look at a film like Compensation and bring it into our lives here in twenty twenty two.
2: I mean, I think the most valuable thing about the disability justice movement is um this really this real emphasis on like dealing with people, like the least of us, I guess, right? Like this idea that we are, the disability justice movement really emphasizes um, the the pure humanity of every single person, regardless of how they look, regardless of what their abilities are, their class, their race, their gender. Um, It's just a really, a truly inclusive movement in a way that I think um, even our racial justice movements and our gender justice movements can be um, sometimes a little... um, (laughs) a little essentialist, um, really, really focused on their own, on, on, on one way, on a one-way approach um, to living in the world, to being in the world. Um, disability really throws all of that into question um, because there's such a broad swath of what disability looks like, of what ability looks like, and it's also something that we're all gonna experience, hypothetically, in our lives, right? As we get older, um, it's something that we're all, that, we're, that we all might exp- hap- have happened to us. Um, and so I think that, you know, compensation does a really great job, not only of sharing um, a poignant, really realistic, fair black story, but also um, blackness that is not just about blackness, that is really about um, the fullness that is being a black person, and that can be a woman, that can be a man, that can be a disabled person. Um, This film just does a really great job of, of highlighting the, the richness of human experience.
0: Well, the Partners exhibit just wrapped last month, correct? Mm-hmm. And that was a beautiful exhibition of folks coming together across a variety of challenges. What do you got coming up and what are the programs that you want people to know about that are available at Art Access?
2: Yeah, so we have a great um, program manager, Max Barnowitz, that was on the show with me recently as well um, and has also been amazing in helping set up this uh, project with this partnership with the Utah Film Center. Thank you, Russell, for including us in this process. Absolutely. Um, but, so, you you know, these shows like this are things that we're trying to roll out in the community as well. Um, so we want to keep, you know, keep abreast of our social media pages um, to see our speaker series that are coming out. Um, Embodied Ecologies, which is our artist working group, is um, kicking off next week. So we have a group, a small group of artists that are going to be working together to create um, a cross um, art form, cross ability exhibit um, piece that will, that will be shown in late summer. Um, and well yeah. please
0: come back with some folks oh, and talk about it
2: we can do a whole show on it great
0: <laughs> alright so what's the website
2: we are artaccessutah.org and the socials uh, we have, we're Art Access on um, Instagram and we're also artaccess on Facebook
0: Excellent. So again, Black Bold and Brilliant coming up on March fifteenth, and this is compensation this month. But what's coming up, Russell? So for
1: <clears throat> excuse me. So for next month, uh, in April, we've got Follow the Drinking Gourd, which is a really wonderful documentary about uh, black food sovereignty and really about inner city farmers really trying to do their best to just maintain, which is uh, sadly, all too often uh, what needs to happen. In regards to just being taken care of, uh, really about sustenance and really doing it for yourself.
0: And where can folks get all the details? Plus, sign up for Black, Bold, and Brilliant. That's happening March 15th.
1: utahfilmcenter.org
0: And is there anything you two want to leave with our listeners about Black, Bold, and Brilliant and why it's important in 2022 to have a series like this? Russell, Gabby, either one of you.
1: Well, I would say for uh, a community like this, where, you know, the black population is less than 2%, we're a minority of a minority, it really is important that uh, the authorship of the narrative really come from the community itself. So they have the opportunity to share the stories and the lived experiences as authentically as possible.
2: And I think for myself, too, as a black person growing up in Utah, being from Utah, I think films like Compensation really give me a window into history and culture that I have not often don't have access to as a black person. So it's really a learning and growing experience for me as well. Well,
0: thank you too so much for coming in and giving us a preview of Black, Bold, and Brilliant. You can check the show notes tonight, folks, to get signed up for the event on March 15th and also look down the road in the series. And if folks want to get involved, well, hey, we'll have links. So you can get involved with Art Access or the Utah Film Center. We're radioactive. We're, again, looking for volunteers as we're back live. And if you'd like to help us greet guests and make sure the show gets on the air live, we'd love to hear from you. Radioactive at krcl.org. Russell and Gabby, thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. And to get us from here to there and reframing the conversation coming up next, Yola, who's in town in April at the depot, I do believe, right out in the country on KRCL 90.9. This is Radioactive. I take a ride out in the
2: country, get some wind in. KRCL's annual record and CD sale will be making its triumphant return in 2022. We're planning something special, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, we'll be taking donations of your gently used, tremendously loved, but slightly neglected records and CDs. If you can let go, we can make sure those treasures get their way to the next music lover in line. Donations are tax deductible, and will help power your community radio station, 90.9 FM, KRCL. If you'd like to donate, reach out to me, Eric P. Nelson, at recordsale at
0: krcl.org for details. See you soon. As many as 2 million people have been displaced in Ukraine. The Utah Ukrainian Association has a list of ways you can help. Find them on Facebook under the handle Love Ukrainians or the Connect page of krcl.org. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up on Democracy Now! at 7 o'clock, a report from Ukraine. Russian forces carry out vindictive and deliberate attacks on civilians. As calls grow for a ceasefire in Ukraine, millions of extremely vulnerable refugees flee to Europe. And I'm ready to be arrested. Activist in Moscow says mass Russian protests can stop Putin's war. At eight o'clock tonight, Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike, Gianni in the Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. Rich checks in at 1 a.m. for I Don't Sound Like Nobody, followed by Illustrated Blues at three, and then your brand new day starts at six. You can listen to the last two weeks of any show on demand if you go to krcl.org and click Programs. All right, now it's time for an excerpt from Reframing the Conversation from the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion folks at the University of Utah. Last month, the topic was Strange Fruit, Why We Must Address Anti-Black Racism. Coming up, you're going to hear from Tyler Clark, a second-year grad student in the Department of Economics, Edmund Fong, Chair of the Division of Ethnic Studies and Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science, Dr. Tamara Stevenson, Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and Chief Diversity Officer at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. And of course, she has been a host on this show. And Asia Washington, a black feminist social worker here in Salt Lake. She's co-hosted this show before and is part of our black, bold, and brilliant team with the Utah Film Center. We pick up the panel discussion with moderator Dr. Rachel Alicia Griffin, an associate professor of race and communication and associate chair in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah. Here we go.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Let's try it again. I said good afternoon, everyone. Good Good afternoon. afternoon. All right. A little bit of call and response (laughs) if we're going to talk about black people and black culture and anti-black racism. Let's not be so white up in here, right? (laughs) And I say that as a biracial black and white woman. My mother is white as an SPF 80 white and my father was incredibly dark skinned. And so around our tables, we have all kinds of conversations. And sometimes the very first thing we say is let's not be so white up in here, right? So the very first thing I want to do is I want us to fill this room with applause for every single person who set up a chair, who coordinated a schedule, who's doing the sign interpretation, who vacuums the carpet, every single person who took part and engaged in very important labor to bring us together in this space deserves our applause. So please clap for them. I also want you to know, and I mean this from the very inside of my heart, that it is nice to see you and it is nice to be seen by you. And it is really nice to gather on a campus It was never intended for people who look like me to talk about people who look like me. I want to thank everyone here in the room and over zoom for joining us to do the hard work of intellectually and emotionally grappling with anti-black racism and what Maya Angelou poetically termed these yet to be United States. Right? For those of us today who are new or new-ish to conversations like ours, I wanted to offer brief definitions that I invite our panelists to expand upon as they generously share their thoughts with us. Generally speaking, the way that I define racism, starting there, for my undergrads and everyday people and family alike, I define racism as culturally sanctioned structures, systems, discourses, and ideologies that regardless of intentions, sustain white supremacy to the socio-historical and economic and personal detriment of people of color. Now, when we shift to talking about anti-black racism in particular, that shift is essential because then we can talk about the specificity of racism directed at people and communities of African and black descent. It is rooted in our unique colonial history of enslavement and global diaspora. To quote Mr. Garfield, the wise and excellent director of our Black Cultural Center, in preparing for this event, he said the following, we are centering anti-black racism because we believe that the systems that create, uphold and empower anti-black racism are the same systems that harm other communities of color. Anti-black racism alongside indigenous genocide are also the deepest roots in this country. And so now I'm gonna ask each of our panelists to introduce themselves with their names and their pronouns and whatever it is that we need to know about how y'all came to be on this particular panel to have this very important discussion today.
4: I guess I'll start. Um, my name is Asia Washington. I am a social worker. I'm a therapist. Um, and I'm a community member like all of you. I've had the honor of working with Director Garfield on some other projects, including a show on KRCL. Um, and I currently serve as the host and lead programmer for Black Bold and Brilliant, the show through the Utah Philby Center. So You can check us out there.
5: Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm
6: Tyler. Um, I'm a second-year graduate student in economics here at the University of Utah Um, and I complain a lot about capitalism, so that's why I'm (laughs)
7: here. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tamara Stevenson. I am the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Chief Diversity Officer, and Associate Professor of Communication at Westminster College. So, we are your comprehensive university with the Liberal Arts Foundation just down the street from you. From the beginning of my uh, undergraduate education in broadcast journalism and eventually into organizational communication, I was always asking, Where am I? Where else am I in this? I was always the only one, and I still am the only one of me at <laughs> Westminster College. And so, that's what brings me here today.
5: Uh, hi, everyone, uh, last and certainly least, I think, among our uh, distinguished <laughs> panel. Uh, I'm Edmund Fong. I am an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and the Division of Ethnic Studies. I'm also serving as chair of the Division of Ethnic Studies as well. Um, so I uh, came here in 2008. I've been here at the University of Utah since then. Um, I grew up in Oakland, California. And that's where my education on anti-blackness started Uh, and did my graduate work in New York City, another prominent sort of arena for uh, understanding anti-black racism. So a little bit about me.
3: Thank you to each of you. Let's also acknowledge that we have a panel full of people of color who are going to do the very personal and intimate work of sharing their insights as people of color on a topic that just hurts. And so let's start with a round of applause for our panelists as well. Now, something else that you all don't know about me, but, but maybe you could have picked up by now, right? Is that people who love me and people who don't wouldn't describe me as an optimist. They just wouldn't, I'm a realist, right? And then, I, I mean, I won't say more than that, <laughs> I'm a realist. That being said, I want you to know something that I am deeply optimistic about. In my heart, as a biracial black and white person, I deeply believe that if most everyday people, if most everyday people, white people in particular, understood what racism feels like, What it felt like for me today to walk into this room to have a conversation about anti-black racism with those particular images on the wall. Take a minute and think about what that might feel like for someone that looks like me. I am optimistic. I believe that if most everyday people white people in particular, understood what racism and racially codified structural disenfranchisement felt like, that they would choose to care. And so I'm going to ask our panelists to start out by responding to this question. How does living in a society structured by anti-black racism feel in your everyday life?
4: I guess there's there's like a lot of things that come to mind for me. Um, I think it, it feels very lonely, especially in Utah being like Tamara has expressed being the only one in a lot of spaces. I'm usually the only black person or person of color in a lot of spaces I occupy. And so, you know, there's this, pressure that's put upon you to speak for, you know, your race or for people of color, which is unfair. And also there's a silencing that happens so often in these spaces and it's really disheartening. And frankly, it takes a toll on your mental health when you feel like you cannot express yourself without being shut down constantly.
7: So my roots are From Detroit, Michigan, which is upwards of 80% African-American. I'm a product of the Detroit public school system. I received an Affirmative Action scholarship to Wayne State University to study journalism. I didn't understand what all of that meant until I got to graduate school as a first-generation college student and first figured out what the significance of that experience And when we talk about feelings, it's a bit challenging to be able to articulate those feelings when you don't have the actual words. So when I happened upon critical race theory in graduate school, when I happened upon critical race theory in graduate school, when I happened upon critical race theory in graduate school, that gave me the aha of oh, this isn't personal, this is structural. Oh, this isn't personal, this is systemic. So the tenet that says racism is ordinary, embedded in the fabric of the policies and practices of this nation, oh, that's why I was the only one at almost every job I had, even after the master's degree, after two job layoffs, and then to go back to school and go, oh, aha. And then the second connection to that aha was learning about racial battle fatigue. My mentor, Dr. William Smith, the University of Utah professor here, oh, now I understand the feelings, the psychological, physiological, and behavioral effects of cumulative exposure to racial and gender combined microaggressions, the environmental microaggressions in this room. On this campus, on my campus, in this state, all the more. So, feelings, part of me is like, don't worry about my feelings. I'll handle that. Let's deal with the unfair, hypocritical structures that exist that perpetuate this hierarchy that block people from being able to access what they are, what is rightfully. Uh, for them, but I'll give you a taste. It is. It can be lonely, it can be isolating, it can be suppressive, it can be oppressive, and it does take away from my energy to do my
6: best work. Ditto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It feels, uh, I just want to echo what each of them said, it's, it's isolating and it feels like freedom of movement. Uh, that's, I think the best way I can sum that up is that in a lot of spaces uh, you feel like you're very lonely, you're very uh, restricted, uh, so it just feels like freedom of movement, um, and you have this looming sort of cloud of like, imminent danger, but you can't really identify where it's coming from, uh, so I think that that's probably the best way I can describe that.
5: Well, I mean, I don't uh, obviously experience the direct hand of anti-black racism, but as someone who, you know, has studied um, anti-black racism, you know, throughout my life, even as a kid, um, you know, I think for me, what it feels like is that, you know, almost everything in American society and culture um, is something that is shaped and threaded through anti-black racism. And so that lends for me a kind of you know, gravity, certain resonance, tragic resonance, um, uh, uh, irony often um, into you know, everything that we sort of cherish and hold dear, you know, what we consider to be our, our best thing, if you will, I think is uh, deeply sort of shaped by anti-black racism across American history. Um, so yeah. The
3: second question is what is the one characteristic or consequence of anti-black racism that you wish more people understood? The hypocrisy.
7: (laughs) Just the sheer hypocrisy of it all. I mean, if if, uh, uh, everything was equal, had equal access, and if meritocracy was a valid ideology, then why the need for the structural barriers? Why not everybody get a fair shot? But there are structures in place to maintain, uh, for certain groups to maintain power. And, so, and then conflate the systemic with the individual. Where are your bootstraps? Why don't you have them? Didn't you try hard enough? Why didn't you know that? I walked around as a first-generation college student just meandering. And it wasn't, again, until graduate school when my professor said, it's not your fault you didn't know. Now, did I not know because I didn't look for the information, I didn't know how to look for it, or somebody withheld it so that I could not make good choices about which courses to take, which school to go to? What program would be be useful for me? Maybe I, I, I am successful in spite of those barriers. It's the hypocrisy.
4: I think I want people to know that anti-black racism is literally killing black people. It's killing us in every facet of our society. It's killing us when we're relaxing in our home like a mirror lock and someone can just burst into our home and shoot us dead for no reason. It shows up in the medical industry when they don't take our concerns seriously, when mothers are saying, that they need more when they're giving birth. It shows up when we're not putting on our turn signal on the streets. It shows up in the stress it takes to come into these spaces every single day and have these barriers up that we have to protect ourselves with. That takes a toll. It's literally killing us. Not having access to food and resources that we need to survive on a daily basis is killing us. And all of these things are embedded in the structures that this country has created is literally killing us. Everywhere we turn, it's killing us. That's what I want people to know.
5: Um, I guess I'll say a little something. Um, I think what is at stake for me, uh, sort of in what I study, um, is just how, you know, so much of what, you know, as I was saying earlier, we, we cherish and hold dear in this country and uh, across its history. Is often threaded through a history of anti-black racism. Right. And so if you sort of accept or see that, then there's a kind of paralysis of imagination, um, a sort of blindness to your own self-understanding, to again what you hold dear, um, uh, you know, if you fail to kind of confront with you know anti-black racism. Right? And so I I really think it, it it sort of really inhibits us, you know, in terms of what kind of future we could imagine. You know, I think Rachel said, you know, that we are not yet a United States of America, right? I think, you know, the inability to deal with anti-black racism and really sort of adopt it as our own in some ways, right? To bear that burden and not have it, you know, be borne by, you know, specific people um, is really sort of implicating and has, you know, really sort of deep stakes, you know, for all of us. Right. And I think the history of you know writings by African American thinkers, you know, in its literature and uh, art, you know, reinforces this point. Right, a certain kind of moral blindness, um, you know, from Du Bois and his notion of the veil, to James Baldwin and how he talked about you know a, a failure or, or a lack of our ability to love uh, because of our denial, say, of anti-black racism, motivated denial um even our sort of loss of our you know ability to be you know fully human i think so
6: i guess i'll just say that um if you don't have the experience of um navigating the world as a person of color understand that in addition to what these two these three said uh understand that it's working in the background too it works uh when you talk about Uh, different responses to medicine. It works in different um, ways that the tax code is structured. It works through housing. It works through uh, inclusive transit infrastructure. All of these things are sort of working in the background that sort of compile onto the effect of anti-black policies. You don't really see them every day um, unless you are experiencing them as a person of color or you just have experience with that um, in particular for whatever reason. But yeah, I guess I'll just say that I wish what people knew is that it works in the background. And it works in a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of those things are bolstered by economic policy, which is itself another way that anti-blackness uh, is, is strengthened through economics. As somebody who studies economics, um, It's a very right-wing, very deeply misogynistic, very deeply racist sort of science, and that is sort of how uh, those in power can um, strengthen and maintain systems of anti-blackness through economic policy. Uh, So even if you don't have the experience of moving through the world as a person of color um, and feeling it in each space that you're in, understand that it's also working in the background in economic policy, which is also huge.
0: You're listening to a rebroadcast of Reframing the Conversation from Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah on KRCL. Tonight's topic, Strange Fruit, Why We Must Address Anti-Black Racism. Here's moderator Dr. Rachel Alicia Griffin.
3: As a critical race theorist and scholar activist, part of my own pedagogical commitment is that I will never ask other people to take risks that I will not take alongside them. And so what I want everyone to know from myself is that anti-black racism hurts. And it hurts every day. And it hurts all the time and I perpetually feel like I am in a state of never being able to do enough. I cannot teach enough, I cannot speak enough, I cannot write enough, I cannot advocate enough, I cannot cry enough. Imagine what it feels like if you don't already know to exist in a perpetual state of never being able to do enough. And the one, the one aspect, if I could only choose one aspect of anti-Black racism that I want most people or more people to deeply understand, it is that wherever you are, in whatever spaces you're in, in whatever community you're in, whatever neighborhood you're in, whatever home you're in, whatever apartment you're in, whatever street corner you are on, that that space is of the world that we live in which means that that space is deeply rooted in indigenous genocide and anti-black racism. You know, on the second day of our semester, we were profoundly reminded again that this campus is of the world that we live in, right? And in this moment, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me assure you and I'm fairly certain that every person of color knows what I'm talking about. And so if you don't know what I'm talking about, I need, you need to have a moment and say, why don't I know what Dr. Griffin's is talking about? Because I'm talking about the Black Cultural Center receiving a bomb threat. That is how black people on this campus started this semester, right? Anti-black racism and indigenous genocide is right here. It always has been since the day the U was founded on February 28, 1850. And ain't that some irony? (laughs) Black History Month founding before we had Black History Month. And who do you think built these buildings? Come on, right? And when members of our senior leadership on campus and campus police convey that the U and the broader Salt Lake and Utah communities are not havens for quote, hateful and biased thinking and attacks, I beg your pardon, but I respectfully and unapologetically, in a way, disagree. We are of the world that we live in, and our world is brimming with racialized hatred, indifference, and silencing. So are we. There is no place to go in this country, around the world, that has not been influenced by socially constructed hierarchies of negative difference. Right, Isabel Wilkerson in Cast. it's everywhere. I want you to know that it's, it's inescapable and it hurts. And saying that we're not a haven for it just isn't true. And if we wanna to get to someplace different, then we need to start with more versions of the truth. Which brings us to the third question. What is at stake if we fail to name and challenge anti-black racism? In essence, why should people of all colors and intersectional identities, especially those who identify as white, invest their time and energy in learning how to identify and challenge anti-black racism? And I'm gonna apologize to the panelists because (laughs) I would bet this is the 197,000th time you've had to explain why white people should care. <laughs> but I need you to do it again, if I can beg you. <laughs>
6: uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, you shouldn't. There's nothing in at stake for you. As a white American, there's nothing uh, that you would immediately see is at stake to lose by caring about uh, anti-black racism. Um, But if you want to take it a a step further, what is at stake for all of us uh, as Americans is your democracy. That is what's at stake for anti-black racism, is your democracy. Uh, The strength of an autonomous, participatory, representative government, um, you know, those kinds of things that we have to input our voice into government and to make it work for us, um, you know, those sorts of structures are at stake by not caring about racism. Uh, so I guess that's the best way I can sum that up.
7: Thank you for saying that <laughs> because I wrestled with this question mm-hmm. greatly,
3: mm-hmm.
7: Uh, particularly with the use of the term care. Mm-hmm. Uh, care is that, that feeling side again, and I think that that mutates and dilutes the very real material, structural uh, 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 conditions that exist and that perpetuate anti-racism. If we just say, I'm sorry, that's enough. That is not my language of apology. My language of apology is making restitution. What are we going to do so that we don't, we're not here again? I wrestled with this question also because uh, there's a lot of talk in DEI around empathy. And again, I just, uh, I just, it just doesn't resonate with me on that level. So I've been thinking about this in terms of a spectrum, with empathy on one side and compliance on the other. And I, so, my, if you can't tell already, my slant is over to compliance, right? And we'll deal with your care part later. What are the the laws in place uh, uh, that would prevent? Uh, uh, or reduce or mitigate discrimination. And again, that's what critical race theory, which I learned about in graduate school, sought to expose and illuminate the erosion of laws that were put in place in the 1960s to to, uh, uh, correct somehow counterbalance or just open the access to reduce discrimination. But yet those laws have been rescinded, reduced, weakened in so many ways, and here we are again. So if, if care is your door, if, is, if care is your open door or your gateway into this conversation, I, I presume uh, uh, that that would be productive for you to think about uh, humanity, to think about how you are, are privileged and, and how anti-black racism works to your advantage. And if you're okay with that, so be it. But if you are sincerely committed to justice and accountability, then can do your own work in reflecting on your biases, do your own work in reflecting on how uh, the playing field is in level. And it's not saying you got to be a martyr. It's not saying you got to put yourself up on the proverbial religious cross. But think about how power and privilege and access are unequal and what you can do in your circle of influence to mitigate that.
4: I also struggled with this question. and <laughs> mm-hmm. I think uh, on, I guess, thinking big picture, I think your humanity is at stake. Because what does it say about you to sit here next to your black classmates and allow them to be treated in such a way? What does it say about you to like be a community member or be um, a part of this society and see these things happening and not do anything about it. Um, if you are in a space to do something about it, I would simply just say prove it. Lots of people talk and write Facebook posts. I want to see the action. And, and I, I agree with that sentiment that like we, we actually need to see things happening. Like We have these conversations, and we're going to have this conversation again next year during Black History Month, and the year after that, and the year after that until things really start to change. I don't want to have to talk about this anymore, seriously. like I, I don't want to have to keep talking about this um, to the next generation of students and because their parents never teach them anything, because their parents aren't aware, or they are aware, and they choose not to teach them anyway. Um, I think there's a lot of labor on us, especially the black panelists up here, to come up here and educate you year after year after year um, Like she said, I think you can do your own work. And if you're really about it, I think you can prove it. Because I think the best apology is changed behavior. And so let's see the changed behavior in our society.
5: Well, I mean, what I had said earlier in my last remarks also applies to this question. I mean, and I don't find it hard at all. um, But of course, I'm coming from a more privileged background. Um, but, you know, as I was saying, you know, what's at stake really is the failure of the imagination, our own, all of us, our uh, sort of failure to, you know, kind of not empathize, right, but really just to kind of enliven our own humanity, our own sense of humanity, because we don't understand or, you know, sort of, as I was saying, the things we sort of cherish, right, our best thing, as, as I put it, right, we can't understand our political identities, We can't understand our spatial awareness, urban, suburban. We can't understand our sort of aesthetics around beauty and danger, right? desire uh, and safety. Uh, All of these things that we often take for granted in American society, again, as I said, we are threaded through a history of anti-black racism. And so there's really a kind of fundamental sort of rupture in our ability to just kind of understand ourselves, unless we're willing to sort of learn from you know, our panelists here um, and the broader history of anti-black racism in this country.
3: I also want to underscore that those of you who identify as white, if you can imagine that being, I'm not saying that everyone agrees with this, if you could imagine that being white is a form of structural privilege, in this country, then, and you're curious about learning about that form of structural privilege, that when you, are, when you are listening and learning at events like this, that is in service to yourself. That is not in service to deconstructing anti-black racism. That is not in service to rectifying, that's a strong word, to grappling with the history of indigenous genocide. That is not in service to addressing anti-Asian racism or Islamophobia. One of the things that I've noticed in recent years is that many, many, many white people in positions of power all over this country, we're talking everything from CEOs to university presidents to community leaders, many white people in positions of power, when they are asked, what do you do in your respective position of power? To address forms of racism, they respond and say, I am listening and I am learning. And my immediate reaction is that your listening and your learning has nothing to do with people who look like me. When we listen and when we learn, those are initial first steps that function in service to ourselves to actually function as an anti racist you must take actions to the benefit of alleviating the structural forms of marginalization that have people trapped in them, that have people confined, that have people silenced and suffering and dying. So if the only thing, perhaps, that white people learn from this conversation today is please stop erecting listening and learning as an actual anti-racist action. That is a self-reflexive action that I encourage, that I applaud if my students are listening. I absolutely entice self-reflexivity, but that does nothing to change the structures of racism. How would we know if we lived in a society that was no longer structured by anti-black racism? Help us vision what that might look like, and feel like, and sound like? How would we know if we lived in a society that was no longer structured by anti-black racism? And y- y'all, can, y'all can be grim and say it's not possible. <laughs> yeah. It's all right. We can hold it.
6: Um, I guess I'll start. Um, you'll know because it'll, it'll reflect in who your political leaders are. It'll look more like this room than anything else. That would be, I guess, the first sign of dismantling uh, and knowing that we are moving towards a world of uh, post-racism, I guess. Uh, We wouldn't have to see any of the other sort of um, structural things working in the background against us. Like, you would not see... Uh, you wouldn't see it in housing policy. You wouldn't see it in tax, the tax code. You wouldn't see it in banking. You wouldn't see it in finance. You wouldn't see it in all of these other areas. Um, but I think that day-to-day, it would probably not, uh, probably not be noticeable.
5: Um, I guess I'll say something. Um, yeah, count me among the sort of pessimists. Not because it's not something that we should strive for. Absolutely, right. I mean, I think it's what I've been saying is that that's central to you know what it means to be human is to strive and align ourselves with, and understand and act with anti-black against anti-black racism. But you know, I think you know I wrote a book on American exceptionalism and the, and the remains of race, and you know one of the central sort of arguments of of that book was just how you know, we've always in American history kind of entertained the sort of fantasy of perfection, right? Uh, some sort of utopian state of affairs. And that is often sort of built against uh, or, or through anti-black racism against uh, black people. Um, in a denial of things like slavery. Um, and so I'm very wary of, say, utopian kind of ideals that we can sort of know what what it would be like to kind of have a truly equitable society. I think it's an ongoing struggle, right? Never ending. Uh, we are always sort of blind to who may be the next, you know, group of people who, you know, we are unaware of and don't see, you know, sort of the situations and burdens that they face that we are blind to. Um, and so the lesson I take from, you know, anti-black racism is that this is a kind of spiritual journey that doesn't sort of end, right, um, and it's central to who we are. Um, and, you know, I, I've been trying and thinking about what I would say today. I've been trying to sort of channel uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved. Um, and so I'll just sort of end with, you know, the epigraph of that book. I will call them my people which were not my people of her beloved which was not beloved right I think that is a kind of spiritual message a kind of ongoing message one that implicates all of us it's sort of a plug for you know our school transform it's you know kind of central a kind of humble message around intersectionality and critical race theory as well right the idea that we always need to be aware and alive and act and build community with you know, those things that you know lie just outside of our you know sort of hubris right our range of sort of uh, um, uh, what we understand ourselves to be right and that in, in order to sort of open ourselves up to that possibility that is kind of how we grow uh, um, imagine uh, new forms of community.
7: I would say that. Uh, <clears throat> Repeat the question again, the last part about
3: how would we know if we lived in a society that was no longer structured by anti-black racism? My hair care products
7: would not be in a locked uh, mm-hmm. on a locked shelf at Walgreens or wherever else I'm getting.
3: Amen. And I could get a greeting card that looked like me. Right. And also a Mother's Day card that looked like my mother and I. Mm-hmm. Right.
7: So there's that. That's a very practical, that's a very real. Uh, an example of again access, an example of of, of of fairness, an example of of seeing yourself in your in in the cultural space and not having to to it being an uphill battle at times to just being able to breathe uh, uh, in, a, in a space. Um, it's clear that we live in a, a society, and, and again, I'm just thinking about the trajectory of DEI and how we went from this melting pot, and that was the metaphor that everybody loved, but what it didn't, uh, what was forgotten was everybody kind of loses their, their distinctiveness, their uniqueness, their, their, their specialness. And then we're now moving to, I don't what's the current, uh, uh, talk, it was a salad at some point, and uh, just all these, all these different kind of metaphors. Good effort, but as we're going forward, it is, it is critical, it is necessary to be able to stand in your specialness while also being, as, as what Dr. Fong has shared, uh, that we appreciate each other in, in the beautiful things that we bring to each other. But again, what does that look like in everyday practice when you are confronted with questioning your abilities, your competencies. I also teach a course on intercultural communication in 15 weeks. First week I have to say this is my this is who I am. these are my credentials week 15 this is who I am. These are my credentials. my white male counterparts don't have to do that. they walk in the room and it is an immediate uh, respect for what they bring to the room. So equity I was waiting for for Tyler to... Talk about the inter interwoven capitalistic aspects of anti black racism. Maybe you'll that's write that. That's gonna take in. another
6: two hours. That's your book.
7: That's your book. So so <laughs> so I, maybe I'd like to call it aspirational. So even when you mentioned about this place not being a haven for for racism, it's aspirational, right? On a good day, that's aspirational. On a good day. So. It's not you just pluck out anti-racism and the world is healed, but we still have to look at all of the structural components, economic, uh, educational, uh, and all of those to really uproot it. And maybe we won't uproot it, but we'll definitely uh, damage it so that it doesn't do more harm to all of us.
0: Dr. Tamara Stevenson, Asia Washington, Edmund Fong, Tyler Clark, and moderator Dr. Rachel Alicia Griffin. From Reframing the Conversation, Strange Fruit, Why We Must Address Anti-Black Racism. We didn't have time for the entire discussion, so check tonight's show notes for a link, and you can watch it as well as read a transcript. Reframing the Conversation is produced and hosted by Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the University of Utah. My thanks to event manager Eunice Contreras from EDI, for ensuring we're able to share these shows with you on Radioactive. And my thanks to Black, Bold, and Brilliant at the Utah Film Center, Russell Roots, who was on earlier this hour alongside Gabriella Huggins, Executive Director of Art Access. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow night on a Punk Rock Farmer Friday edition of Radioactive only on KRCL. Recently on Radioactive Summer Break... Meet the DJ.
8: Richard Parks, the host of I Don't Sound Like Nobody.
0: Okay, we got to start where that comes from, the name of the show. And I have a sneaking suspicion it goes to Elvis.
8: It does. So in 1953, Elvis was looking for a way to get recorded. He knew he was good, but had no idea how to do it. And he was driving a truck, and one day he pulled up in front of Sun Records. And part of Sun Records was the Memphis Recording Service. Son wasn't selling many records, so they had to, they were recording funerals and weddings and anything. So Elvis went in and recorded a couple of songs, and on the way out, he stopped to talk to the receptionist, Marion Kiesker, and Elvis said to her, "Hey, if you know any bands, give me a call." And Marion said, "Well, who do you sound like?" And Elvis said, "I don't sound like nobody." And there it is. <laughs>
0: So where does your love for the music of the 50s, I'm guessing 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s come from? How wide is your genre?
8: I mean, I'll go back. I just finished a book that says that the first rock and roll record was recorded in 1926. So I I stumble back into the 20s sometimes, but a lot of post-World War II, R&B, and a lot of 50s. There's about 300 songs that our 50s rock and roll songs, and we hear them all the time. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that nobody got to hear, just like any other era of music. There's stuff that people did not hear. So I'm playing the 300, and I'm dragging some other stuff out, too.
0: What made you want to be a DJ on KRCL?
8: Radio saved my life. I mean, as a kid, there was no adult males who were talking to me, except the radio, so I used to listen to radio all the time. I remember getting up at midnight to listen to R&B from the Trenton station with Jerry Blavitt, the geeter with the heater, the boss with the hot sauce, and you know, listening to Play by Play. And those people talked to me and the music talked to me. Let me know that whoever those artists were, they were thinking about things the same way I was. And it was good to know that. And KRCL is just, um, you know, I came here in 1979, and I don't know if I would have stayed without KRCL. It's been a uh, continual radio lifeline for me.
0: Richard Parks, host of I Don't Sound Like Nobody, every Friday morning from 1 to 3. You may also listen when you want, where you want, when you visit the Programs tab, and choose KRCL On Demand on our website, krcl.org.